Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. I'm going to show you a couple things today that if you have a book of notes or if you've ever thought of starting a book of notes, now's the time. Because as we go through these lessons, I'm always trying to present to you, if possible, a learning technique, trying to show you how they figure this stuff out. Where do they get the context for this? And if you write those things down, not only is it a great journalistic record of your studies, but it's also defining for you the things that you can also use as you continue to study on your own. In general, the reason that we don't consider other nations who conquered Israel as part of the the image of the beast is because they never conquered Jerusalem. They never conquered Jerusalem. And so as you're studying the book of Daniel, what you realize is that the one thing that held Daniel's focus, no matter which kingdom he served, whether he served the lion or the bear, He endured through the Babylonian kingdom into the Medo-Persian kingdom. So even dealing with these different rulers, Daniel never quit looking to Jerusalem. And if you look at Daniel's prophecies, this is what binds them together, a concern for the welfare of Jerusalem. Eventually, this is how he's trapped. Those who don't like him, those who uh, fear him those who are jealous and envious of him, what do they do? They set him up because they know that he'll pray three times a day toward Jerusalem. So while, yes, there are other conquering nations, the characteristic of the beast nations is they will have, at some point in history, they will have conquered Jerusalem. So today we're going to look and we're going to see where Daniel in his visions of the image of the beast He sees different beasts. He doesn't see, you know, the lion, the bear, the leopard. Instead, he sees different beasts. And we say, why? Why, if it's already established that Babylon was a leopard, that Medo-Persia was a bear, that Greece was a leopard, why is he using different animals? Well, I want to show you that. Why would he pick something else? Uh, So in Daniel 8, 3 through 8, He says, then I raised my eyes and looked and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Remember, the ram with the two horns in this prophecy is Medo-Persia. They're separate, but they're together, so to speak. That's why they're called Medo-Persia. Now, the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other. The Persians' uh, kingdom lasted longer than the Median kingdom. It says, with the longer one coming up last... So you had uh, Daniel served, went from Babylon, uh, then he served under the Medes, and then he served under the Persians, because the Persian kingdom lasted longer. And if you'll remember, you know, the Persian kingdom, it was so extensive, it did harass Greece. I mean, it extended that far. He says, I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward. And no other beast could stand against him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and made himself great. So the the Medo-Persians 
they expanded the kingdom of Babylon, right? And you say, well, why? Why have we shifted from a bear to a ram? Well, we're going to see something else uh, as he continues going over it. Not only are we going to see a ram, which is a domesticated animal, it's even a kosher animal. Now we're going to see a male, a shaggy male goat, which is going to represent Greece. He says, while I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the entire earth without touching the ground. He's very rapid. And that characterized Alexander's army, Alexander the Great's army. Uh, they were very swift. They, they had a, an innovation, a military innovation called the phalanx that was very um, effective in battle. So they were definitely military innovators. They could move fast. And of course, Alexander the Great was known as a great horseman. Uh, his father, Philip of uh, Macedon, he was known as a great horseman. In fact, I think Philip, his father, actually means horseman. Um, anyway, it says the goat had a prominent horn between his eyes. Now, this is Greece. And the prominent horn is going to be Alexander the Great. He came up to the two-horned ram, which I had seen standing in front of the canal and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. And I saw him come up beside the ram and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram and smashed his two horns and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him and there was no one to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat made himself exceedingly great. But what we know about Alexander is he died young. He died very young. And so it says, once he became powerful, the large horn was broken. Alexander died. In its place, four prominent horns came up toward the four winds of heaven. So this is going to be... Uh, the strongest of his generals. And this is what, you know, he, when he was asked who was going to succeed you, he said literally the strongest. So that led to his empire being divided among four of his generals in 323 BC. And of course, if you've read the, the Maccabees, the books of the Maccabees, or you've read the Hanukkah story, you're familiar with some of these Greek uh, governors that would have ruled over the area of Judea. But it did. It established four reasonably stable powers following the death of Alexander the Great. The Ptolemaic Kingdom of Egypt. Um, at this point, old Egypt is gone. And even though we look at, say, Cleopatra as being an Egyptian queen, she was Greek. She was part of the Ptolemaic Kingdom. Uh, the Seleucids, the Italid dynasty of the kingdom of Pergamon, and then Macedon, which of course, you know, Macedon's very close to Greece. Um, and Alexander's father was Macedonian. So even though these four horns are not established in true north, south, east, west directions, it, it's, the text says it's toward the four winds of heaven. So in general, you can say the Seleucids ruled the east, the Ptolemies the south, the Macedonians, the West, and the Italians or Antigonus ruled the North. 
Now remember, when we went back through the encampments of the 12 tribes of Israel in the wilderness, we talked about not just the 12 tribes, but how groups of three were located in the four directions camped around the tabernacle and how this was designed as kind of a divine machine that through their obedience to the covenant, through their being true servants of the Holy One, that these angels of the four winds who had the power over the four directions, and of course the four winds are thought to represent also the four kingdoms. In other words, the strong powers that rule, um, like the Prince of Persia, remember Daniel, his prayers were going to be answered, but there was opposition from the Prince of Persia because at this time, uh, the, these principalities and powers that are appointed over the kingdoms, over the nations, angels are very single-minded. They don't multitask. They're given one thing to do at a time. And so apparently the prince of Persia thought that Daniel receiving this answer would be um, not conducive to the empire of Persia. And so he's going to obstruct and apparently there has to be some things that take place to where these angels are reminded, hey, look, you're appointed as a principality or a power over a particular empire or nation, but you are not the power. You, you have a king. You have one who rules over you. And apparently uh, it took a couple of different angels uh, to bring the prince of Persia around. So it took extra time for Daniel to receive his answer. But should Israel in these four encampments, should they walk in obedience? Should they, you know, uh, function in their calling? Then there would be harmony among these four winds. When they abdicated their covenant position through disobedience, rebellion, etc., then you pretty much leave the fate of the nations in the hands of these four winds, these angels of the four winds that you also see in Revelation. But they, these angels will take instruction from heaven because that's, you know, that's where the orders come from. Uh, they are not the ultimate authorities, but in absence, obviously, of the spiritual influence of the righteous, things become much more chaotic. And so when King Messiah comes, the rabbis say he will be the one who will be able to harmonize the four winds so that they're no longer damaging. They, they can work in harmony instead of working against one another. Right? Um, that particular chaos, you say, well, why would God allow that chaos? Well, remember, he didn't just allow the Tower of Babel. He confused the languages at the Tower of Babel. And so it's in our best interest sometimes for us to be divided and confused with one another, for there to be a sense of chaos, because if we ever got together, uh, what's the old saying? It would be Katie bar the door. If you don't know what that means, you're probably not old enough. <laughs> All right. So let's skip ahead a little bit. That's just kind of review to bring us back up to, to speed here. Um. And let's go on. Let's read some more of Daniel's prophecy in chapter 8, verse 21. He's told that the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece and that the large horn that's between his eyes is the first king. Uh, the broken horn, the four horns that come up in its place, they're going to represent the four kingdoms which will arise from his nation. Uh, 
but they're not going to have the same power as he does because it's it's broken up into four pieces instead of one cohesive empire under Alexander. It says in the latter period of their dominion. Okay, he's Daniel's still talking about a, a fairly soon event, still prophesying about that. When the wrongdoers have run their course, a king will arise, insolent. Right? The, the word there is azpanim, uh, which means the, the strength of face. You can even hear the little play on word there with az, strength, azazel, the scapegoat. Uh, there's a strength, there's a, an insolence that's associated with this particular king. And of course, uh, Rome is in the gematria, it doesn't equal azpanim, it's one more plus one. And so they say that, that Rome rose in arrogance, even above the highest level of arrogance against the holy people. Um, you know, got to be careful doing gematria, but that's an interesting parallel there. So he's insolent and skilled in intrigue and his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and be successful and do as he pleases. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. Right now, it says through his shrewdness, he will make deceit a success by his influence. And he will make himself great in his own mind. And he will destroy many while they are at ease. That's the thing to be careful of when things are going great. That's when you really need to have your radar up because that's when you're most susceptible to deception and influence. It says he will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. Even going to oppose the prince of princes. He, he's insolent enough that he believes he can prevail in that case. Right. And so don't, Forget this principle. If this isn't in your little notebook, this is a principle you want in your notebook. When the beast emerges from the water, its power is less than when it emerges from the forest or from the land or from the wilderness. If it comes against Israel from the land, very strong. But if it, say, comes up of the, under up from the water and stands on the sand of the seashore, it tells you it looks fearsome, but it's going to weaken and die fairly quickly. Right, it's actually good news. It looks terrifying, but it's actually good news. Right, so Rome, this fourth beast kingdom, this composite animal, is also considered to be the boar. Psalm 8013, it says a boar from the forest eats it away, and whatever moves in the field feeds on it. And so this is why, you know, we can say Rome was a very powerful kingdom. It came from the forest. Uh, and what did it do? It pretty much fed on the holy people. So it was fueled, again, by disobedience. When Israel disobeys, when they have baseless hatred, when they are not performing in their function, then um, it strengthens the power of the beast. Right? 
Um, so let's move on. Now, here's where we can see. We just looked at one example where different animals were substituted into the prophecy of the image of the beast. Right. Now let's go to Jeremiah 5, 6. I want to show you another place where it looks like you're dealing with the lion, which is Babylon, the first beast kingdom. Um, in fact, it's a very strong lion. It says, therefore, a lion from the forest will kill them. A lion from the forest will kill them. That tells you the lion is very strong. From the forest, that's your strength phrase. Or if it said from the wilderness, that would be a strength phrase. If you were to see from the sea, from the river, on the sand of the seashore, that would tell you that's a weakening phase and phrase. So this strong lion, it says from the forest, will kill them. And then it introduces a completely different animal. <clears throat> we're not suddenly it's switching from a lion, the Babylonian head inserts a wolf of the deserts. A wolf of the deserts will destroy them. A leopard is watching their cities. Of course, you remember the leopard is Greece. So why is it inserting between the lion and the leopard, which should be a bear? Why does it become a wolf? Well, it goes on, it says, everyone who goes out of them will be torn in pieces because their wrongdoings are many. Their apostasies are numerous. Now let's go back to Daniel because he's really the one who tells us about the image of the beast um, and these beast kingdoms. Well, remember an incident that occurred in the book of Daniel, like I said, where Daniel was trapped by those who were jealous of him, those who coveted his power. They knew he would pray toward Jerusalem three times a day, like clockwork. Well, this is the, the trap. If your heart and your mind are still pointed toward Jerusalem, especially the, the feasts, the holy service there, then this will be where your enemies attempt to trap you. So don't, we don't, shouldn't be surprised when that happens. We should expect it. Uh, you're predictable, or you should be predictable in that respect. So that makes you more trappable. They know who you serve. But in this case, Daniel is put into the lion's den. And we know that Babylon was a lion of the forest, very strong, enduring. We know that the power of Babylon was also passed on to the bear, to Medo-Persia. And it became even stronger because of the bear paws. But the head of the beast, which is the lion, the golden head, the lions couldn't kill Daniel. And so it suggests at this point where the lion should have been the strongest, the lion of the forest, the land-based creature, it couldn't touch Daniel. There is a suggestion here that we're watching a prophecy, that somehow this lion or this den of lions that should have eaten him before he ever hit the ground, because that's what happened to those who set him up. They were thrown in. They were devoured before they hit the ground. The suggestion here is that lion, the lion has been turned into a creature from the sea. What would that mean? It means that it had been turned into a powerless creature. 
It lost its power to harm a righteous man. Instead, it only retains the power to harm a wicked, evil person. So if we're watching a prophecy here, what does that tell us? Well, the image of the beast, is it powerful? Yes, it is powerful. But we know that the Holy One is even in control of these things. Remember, the angels of the four winds, they control these kingdoms. They administrate these kingdoms under the power of the Holy One. And if the Holy One says, you are not to allow Daniel to be touched, even though he's absolutely swallowed up in the lion's den, then it renders that kingdom, that lion, powerless to harm Daniel because he's a righteous man. He has not forgotten his citizenship in Jerusalem and said, I'm a Babylonian, or said, I'm a Mede, or said, I'm a Persian. He has maintained his Jerusalem citizenship. So what happens, instead, they, they throw his prosecutors into the lion's den. It says they're eaten. They're devoured before they hit the ground. So this is an interesting turn of events. We can see that eventually the forces of these beast kingdoms can be made to swallow the wicked, not the righteous, because the Holy One never slumbers or sleeps. He watched Daniel all night in the lion's den to make sure he was safe. Um, and then, of course, it goes on. It mentions the leopard, which would be the next beast kingdom. It's watching. It's learning. What, what can I do? How am I going to circumvent this divine protection? And if Greece is observing, what it is observing is that we really won't have any power over the righteous of Judah. But if we attack those who are not, and this is how so many Jews became Hellenized under the Greeks, they, they basically became Greek Jews. You'll remember them being mentioned in the Gospels and the, the disciples being all been out of shape because the Greek Jews were coming. These were the Hellenistic Jews who began to adopt a lot of the systems or the spots of Greece, um, the philosophy, the education, the sports, uh, the education, they loved all these systems and began to incorporate them and they became Hellenized. They took on the, the leopard's spots, whereas Daniel was never changed. The lion didn't change him. The bear didn't change him. He was still who he was. So here's our question. Why do the wolves get inserted into these beast texts? We've got the lion, we've got the leopard. And we know, of course, that the incident with Daniel was under the Medo-Persian Empire, the bear empire. Why did a wolf get stuck into where we expected a bear to be? Well, it's serving a function. It's, it's um, a prophetic time marker. So if you're making your little dictionary for yourself, what does a wolf symbolize? Now, this is not just one thing. We're going to look at one thing that a wolf can symbolize because we're interested in prophecy right now. This can mean other things if we say, what does a wolf mean? But I think when you transcribe this, it'll start making total sense to you because of other contexts 
in which the wolf is used as a symbol. Right? A lot of you have been to congregations where they have the banners of the 12 tribes and you know the tribe of Benjamin is always represented there as a wolf. The wolf is a time marker. It's a time marker. And what it's going to do, it's going to link the destruction that will begin in the evening with the freedom of the morning. Now, what are we talking about? Remember, you already have these symbols in your notebook. Evening represents exile. Evening represents exile. But the morning represents the end of the exile. And so these prophecies, we know, go all the way back to the first day of creation and the fourth day of creation. There was evening and morning. There was light and there was darkness. Even before there's a human being created, there is a proto-prophecy of Israel's exile and the separation of the darkness from the light and how the evening and the morning function and how this will be part of the, the history of the earth until everything is turned back to the beginning where there will be no more darkness. There will simply be a supernal light. Uh, it will have no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness at that point. Everything will be light. The holy city will be light and you won't need the, the physical light of the sun, the moon, or the stars in order to maintain that lightness. But in the interim, it's, you know, the Holy One knows what's going to happen. And so he has these creation prophecies that are really telling us there will be an exile, first from the garden, then from the promised land, then from the promised land again, then from the promised land again. There will be even, even an exile when they're within their land. During the time of the Greeks, the time of the leopard, when so many Jews became Hellenized and they pretty much became Greeks, even within their own land. But here's, here's the prophecy that helps us understand how the wolf represents prophetic time. You go back uh, to Genesis 49, 27, and these are blessings upon the 12 tribes. And since Benjamin is the last child of Jacob, he represents the end of something. You ever think about that? Benjamin represents the end of something. What started out as Ben-Oni, which is the son of my suffering, instead becomes Benjamin or Benjamin, which means son of the right hand. And we know Yeshua is seated at the right hand of the father. So Benjamin represents the end of something. So it says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he devours the prey. And in the evening, he divides the spoils. Now, notice right there is backward from the pattern that you see in the creation week. Backward. In the creation week, there's evening and there's morning. Well, here you've got morning and then you've got evening. But see, because you already know what the morning and the evening represent, you're beginning to get a clue why it would be reversed in this particular prophecy. Because Adonai is going to have the last word. And it's going to be symbolized by Benjamin as a ravenous wolf. So we look into the geography of Israel and we find the wolf he's most likely referring to. We don't want to look at an Arctic wolf. 
We don't want to look at a timber wolf. We don't want to look at a red wolf. There's all kinds of wolves out there, right? We want to go back and we want to look at the desert wolf, which if you're reading in scripture, most often it's referring to a desert wolf. Um, In modern times, they're referred to as the Arabian wolf. And you can notice by looking at the the picture that I've got up here on the, the screen for you, that this particular type of wolf, um, it's made a little thinner. It's got nice long legs. It's usually got pretty big ears because it's built to dissipate heat. It's it's adapted to its its environment, which of course is going to be, you know, the desert itself. So we don't want to, like I say, we don't want to compare it to a North American wolf because they might have different habits. They might operate more in the daytime. The desert wolf is a nighttime operator. And if we know that the evening or the night, they represent the onset of the exile and the exile. Well, when does the wolf operate? He marks the time. The wolf is going to wake up in the evening when the sun starts to go down and it's not so hot. That's when the desert wolf wakes up and he goes to work hunting the prey. And so they hunt as a pack, they find the prey, and they divide. It says he divides the spoils, right? This is what he does in the evening. They catch their prey in the evening. The pack divides the spoils, and then they might take a nap, let it digest a little bit. And then when they sense that dawn is about to break, they'll go back to the remains of the prey, and they'll munch on the bones. There's a lot of um, marrow that's inside the bones. It's very nutritious. There might be a little meat left on the bones for nourishment. And so in the morning, what does he do? He finishes off. He devours the prey. And this is the time when we know the exile is almost over. It's the morning. But in the evening, what does he do? That's when he feasts. He divides the the prey among the pack. But at this time of day, you're going into exile. So time marker, what does the wolf represent? The wolf represents the time of going into exile and exiting the exile. That's the picture that you're, you're supposed to. And if you lived in Israel, I'm sure it would be much easier to kind of picture how this worked. But the, the scripture itself, I think, is sufficient because now we can look at other examples and say, yeah, that's what it's doing here. Like Isaiah 34, 14, it says the desert creatures will meet with the wolves. This, again, it kind of affirms that it's not talking about just any old wolf anywhere. It's talking about a desert wolf, and they have a particular habit. Uh, We've seen them down at the Tamar Park. Um, They get up as a pack. They cross over from the mountains of Jordan over into the Erevah, and they begin to hunt as a pack. They'll go get them some water down at the spring, and then they'll start looking. They'll start hunting for something to eat. So the the desert comes alive at night when it's not so hot. So the desert creatures will meet with the wolves. It tells you there's a stirring in the evening. The goat also will cry to its kind. Yes, the night bird will settle there and will find herself a resting place. (coughs) So the resting place, a nesting place. There's all sorts of activity, this passage is saying, that goes on in the night. 
It's a night of exile. So in the exile, what is our job? Just to go to sleep? No, it's basically when we go to work. If you don't go to work in the night of exile, then you're going to go hungry the next day when the dawn breaks. And that's kind of the, the message of the kingdom. And it's, it's an important message, but people get so wrapped up in whether once saved, always saved, they fail to look at Yeshua's and their parables, which are very clear that if you work for the kingdom, if you work for the sake of the Holy One, then there will be reward that follows after you. But if you just bury what he gives you, and then you have nothing to give back to him at the resurrection, then, you know, he's like calling you a wicked, lazy servant. Why would you be wicked and lazy? The wolves of the desert get up and go to work at night. Why didn't you work in your exile? Because he would have something to reward you with when the dawn broke at the resurrection. Um, Chavkuk 1.8 or Habakkuk depending on where you come from, I guess. It says their horses are faster than leopards and quicker than wolves in the evening. Wolves when? Wolves in the evening. Why are wolves so quick in the evening? Because they're hunting their prey. They'll be a little more sluggish in the morning because they'll be full of prey. It says their horsemen charge along. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour, right? Hungry like the wolf. Zephaniah 3.3. It says her leaders within her are roaring lions. Her judges are wolves at the evening. They have no bones to gnaw in the morning. All right, that's pretty clear. It really clarifies the prophecy of Benjamin. It says her judges are wolves at evening. They are praying in the evening. They are hunting in the evening. But it says they have no bones to gnaw in the morning. That's when you finish it off. You finish devouring it in the morning. Uh, and so these judges are such predators. They don't have anything even left to gnaw on when the sun comes up. All right. So that helps you a little bit. Uh, this lesson is mainly just giving you the, the prophecy tools, the decoding tools. So that if you see something a little off, like, why is there a wolf inserted within two beast kingdoms? You say, let me go back to the first mention that I can find of wolves. And if I don't get the message from the first mention, then I will look up every single time the word wolf or wolves is used. And as I accumulate these passages in their context, then in my mind, I will begin to get understanding because I will begin to see the pattern. Just like you just saw the pattern. We started with the prophecy of Benjamin and said, okay, here's the characteristics of a desert wolf. And now it's much easier to see how the evening represents the onset of exile marked by the wolf. And then when the wolves go back to sleep, they go back to their dens in the morning. That's the end of the exile. There's no more reason to pray in the night. Now, here's an interesting turn of phrase. This is Psalm 68, 11 through 12. But you can see the parallel here uh, with the tribe of Benjamin. It says, the Lord gives the command. The women who proclaim the good tidings are a great host. They're a great army. Kings of armies flee. They flee. And she who remains at home will divide the spoil. All right, so we got two kinds of women here. 
we have this great host, which literally in Hebrew means a female army. So we have the ones actively going out and, and fighting the battle. And it says the kings of armies will flee from these women. <laughs> a lot of people do. So they flee. And it says, but she who remains at home will divide the spoil. Why would she remain at home? Well, again, the primary job of women, of course, is bearing and guiding the children. It says, don't forget the tour of your mother and don't refuse the discipline of your father. So the first influence of the Torah on children typically is going to be mom. And so the implication is it doesn't matter if you're out there proclaiming the good news, ladies, you're part of a great army, but you're also part of a great army if you remain at home and teach your children the Torah, because you're going to divide the spoil. This is what the wolf does. It divides the spoil in the evening when it catches its prey. It wins the battle of survival, right? So it's in. It's an equal thing. You might be doing this over here, proclaiming the good news, but you're also proclaiming the good news if you remain at home and you guide your children. Either way, you know, as you go in to the exile of night, you're still busy, right? But instead of being preyed upon, you become the wolf. You become a wolf like the tribe of Benjamin. And if you will be the wolf like the tribe of Benjamin in the exile, if you will be obedient, if you will walk in the righteousness of Yeshua, then even the kings of armies will flee from you. They will flee. If you speak the words of the kingdom, if you speak the word of life in the night of your exile, you become the wolf, not the preyed upon, which is a beautiful thing. Because remember, it's the wolf who will mark the end of the exile. Wrap up the bones and let's go take a rest, right? We've got another verse here, Isaiah eleven six. 6. It says, the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling steer will be together and a little boy will lead them. All right, so let's think of the messianic kingdom. Typically, if the evening represents the exile, the exile of Egypt, the exile of Babylon, the exile of Rome. It's not a time of peace. Once the evening set in, sets in, that's when you realize you are truly being preyed upon. Because these beast, see, these beast kingdoms, are they're hunting you in the night. They're hunting you in the night of your, their exile. And, you know, it's like the lion wanted to devour you. The bear wanted to strong arm you. The leopard wanted to assimilate you into his spots, and Rome wanted to use all of these techniques to destroy the righteousness of Messiah in you. So as you recognize, I'm in exile. King Messiah hasn't returned yet. And so my time of lying down in the evening is still one of peril. It's still one where I can't afford to drop my guard. It's one where I still have to pray toward Jerusalem and call upon the, the Shomer Yisrael, the guardian of Israel, who never slumbers or sleeps, to be my night guard. But then it's also my responsibility to never cease to proclaim the good news and the night of my exile, to never cease especially to proclaim the good news to my family, my children, to you know, implant the word of life, the word of Adonai into them. The Torah is a light, the commandment is a lamp. How are your children going to make it in an exile? 
if you're not putting the light and the lamp inside of them, if you're not giving them the commandments, if you're not teaching them the Torah, they have no lamp with which to navigate through this night of confusion where they're being preyed upon by the beast kingdoms. So, you know, saying, you know, I'm not going to pressure my kids with religion. When they get old enough, they can choose it themselves. Well, that's just plain stupid. You have given them nothing. You've not even given them a match in the dark to find their way. You have left them at the mercy of the beast systems. You have left them at the mercy of their seduction, the mercy of their coercion, and the mercy of their outright destruction. Look how many young people right now, they have no purpose in life. They don't know their way. They're in an exile of night and they know it and they know they can't see anything and they give up. They have no purpose. They have no calling because the word, the the light of the menorah, it's not lighting their way. But this passage here in Isaiah 11, it indicates that in the messianic kingdom, it's not going to be a problem anymore because the time when the terror really sets in, which is the evening, when it's hard to see, that's why it says Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, the Shema, you have to be able to hear in the night because you won't see it coming. You have to hear the word, which will protect you against that which you cannot see. And instead of this being a terrifying time, sundown, when you know the wolves are going out to hunt, instead, this will turn into a time of peace. The wolf, the predator, is going to dwell with the lamb. The predation will cease. Even this male goat that represented Greece, it's going to be young before it gets shaggy and hateful and wrathful. And it's going to lie down, you know, with this leopard beast, you know, this, this older the, the older nature, the warlike nature of Greece is going to lie down and it's going to be young again. Maybe that's taking us back to the, the prophecy of Esau and Jacob. The older, it says, will serve the younger. The soul of human beings, which is older than the spirit, the spirit's the last thing breathed in, but our appetite, emotion, desire, and intellect, which is the soul, it will serve the younger, which is the spirit of Adonai that was breathed into it. It's taking us back again to these Edenic principles where the man was created to rule over the beast. And this brings the messianic kingdom back into harmony. John 10, 12, that says, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters the flock. Right, so the scattering of the flock occurs in an exile. It's an evening that is marked by the arrival of the wolf. And if you have shepherds over the sheep who precede this night of exile, they'll run off. They're not the great shepherd of the sheep. And see, Yeshua is the great shepherd of the sheep. He says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Even in this night of exile, I will be with you. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And he's never going to fall asleep on us. He's watching. But those who are not truly shepherds of the sheep, they're like hard hands. And when they see the exile coming, they'll disappear on you and they will just completely assimilate into those beast kingdoms. They were only with the flock as long as it benefited them to do so. When it looks as though that benefit will cease, they're gone. And this, we have to be so careful. You know, why do we serve the kingdom? 
Are we the one who's going to serve the kingdom in spite of the wolf coming, in spite of the fact that we're in the exile and there's beasts circling us on every side? Are we going to abandon the flock? Or instead, are we going to say, give me the heart of the great shepherd of the sheep so that I would never abandon the flock? Just because it looks like hard times are coming. Because if you abandon the flock when you perceive hard times are coming, you're the hard hand. You're, you're not fit for the sunrise, so to speak. Let's see. Let's go here. And just to review, remember going back to the lion's den where Daniel was protected by the guardian of Israel who never slumbered or slept through the whole night. Um, and this event occurred during the reign of Darius the Mede of the Medo-Persian Empire. And you can read about it in Daniel 6. But if you remember the imprisonment in the lion's den, it began at sunset and it ended at sunup. So through that long night, the Shomer Yisrael, he never slumbered, he never slept, he shut the lion's mouth. Wouldn't you just love to have been a fly on the side of the wall <laughs> listening to what Daniel made? I don't know, Daniel talked to the lions through the night? I mean, did he just pray through the night? Did he pray and talk to the lions? What was going on in the dark? I would love to see that. But the the symbolism here is, again, lion is Babylon. The Medes had just conquered Babylon. Daniel has survived that exile. He's survived the regime change. And then he became one of the three rulers under the Medes of their 120 satraps. And then the other two rulers turned on him because they saw that King Darius was about to promote him over all the kingdom. But notice what they referred to him as. One of the exiles from Judah. Remember, the night represents the exile. So they constructed their trap based on Daniel's faithfulness to pray toward Jerusalem. But you see, Daniel had no fear of the exile. He had no fear of the night watches because of his prayers. And so this is a great reason, folks, to pray three times a day toward Jerusalem. The Amidah prayers. I've got a book called Standing with Israel that uh, breaks down very simply the, the standing prayer that's prayed three times a day facing toward Jerusalem, affirming your citizenship. You're a citizen of the holy city, not a citizen of the exile wherever you find yourself. But they trapped Daniel because of his faithfulness to turn toward Jerusalem in prayer. And that's sometimes the question, you know, if you were convicted of being a, a disciple of Yeshua, would there be enough evidence to convict you? There's all kinds of evidence to convict Daniel of maintaining his citizenship and his affiliation with Jerusalem, the seat of the feasts, the, the place of the temple service, the place that Adonai watches over day and night. And so when they refer to Daniel, they call him something very interesting. They say he is one of the exiles from Judah. He's acknowledged here as an exile from Judah. What do they want to do? They want to devour him. They are the lions of Babylon who want to devour him. They are the bears of Medo-Persia that want to crush him. And what did it say? And the leopard is watching. Greece was watching this. And so Greece, so to speak, observes this incident with Daniel in the lion's den 
whether they literally knew about it or not, not really important. Prophetically, it's important. They realized what they would have to do. They would have to assimilate Jews in their own territory. Because Daniel showed you could be outside your territory, you could be in the night of exile outside of the land and never forget who you were. And so what did they do? The leopard comes in with its spots and plants those systems within Judea and then tries to assimilate them into those systems, even inside their own land. It was much more subtle, but it worked. Unfortunately, it worked for a lot of them. But notice what Daniel did here. Um, Daniel, of course, encouraged the Jews when they were in their Babylonian exile. He even corrected. They had miscalculated the number of years that they would be in exile of the 70. And Daniel had to call for the scroll of Jeremiah and show them how they had missed 18 years from their interpretation of what Jeremiah was saying. And so by correcting this calculation, he kept them from being discouraged and losing faith. And thinking, you know what, 18 years have passed. It doesn't look like we're leaving here. It doesn't look like we're ever going to rebuild Jerusalem. He says, no, bring me the scroll. I'll I'll help you figure it out. Um, But one thing to, to remember about Daniel, because we are in an exile too. We may not be an exile of Judah, but we are definitely an an exilic, exilic people. We're trying to function and maintain our Jerusalem citizenship and the nations of our exile. And so should we try to hide from the beast? Should we try to completely withdraw? Because we read Babylon, you know, come out of her, my people. And somehow in our minds, we think that's literally possible. Not really, unless you're rich enough to, you know, buy your own island or somewhere. But no, Daniel continued. He was faithful. He was never assimilated into the systems he worked for. And he was such a great manager. Look how he kept being promoted, even by successive kingdoms, which are usually seen as adversarial. You know, if you just conquered this nation, then you wouldn't necessarily want all the, you know, same people of Babylon running Medea or Persia. That's exactly what happened with Dan. He remained a primary influencer in Babylon, Medea, Persian governments. And eventually, because of his influence, the Jews were able to go back and rebuild the temple. And so that picture we have of Daniel being rescued from the long night of exile in the lion's den, we saw King Darius, who was just distraught, couldn't sleep, fasted. He knew this was wrong. He knew he had been trapped, which gives us hope that there are still governments or or governors, rulers, people out there who are not as wicked as some of the people working for them. And so he's concerned about Daniel and he's, he's checking on, he's the first one out there at sunrise when the exile of night lifts. And he's like, Daniel, are you there? Was your God able to save you? Because he wanted Daniel's God to save him. And Daniel's like, I'm here. O King. (laughs) I'm here. I'm still here. I've been rescued. I've been saved. A miracle has happened here, and the kingdom of my God will never end. And so that should be an inspiration to us as exiles. We be faithful, whichever kingdom we're serving. And as we remain faithful, there are going to be people in authority over us who are watching how we deal with our exile, how we deal with our night. Are are we sitting in the lion's den complaining, whining, carrying on, screaming, screaming? 
accusing, um, (laughs) you know, all the things we do when we don't like the way things are going. But it sounds like Daniel was pretty quiet in there because the king had to ask, oh, Daniel, are you still in there? (laughs) Awful quiet in the lion's den. Are they just digesting? Are you still there? He's like, I'm here, king. You know, the one I serve, he rescues, he saves. And King Darius says, you are absolutely right. Your God saves, he rescues, he performs miracles. His kingdom will never end, even though King Darius's kingdom would end. The kingdom of heaven will never end. And that's our inspiration to this day. We can look back at all of these monster kingdoms in the book of Daniel and say, doesn't matter which monster, you know, I've been sent to. I'm going to be faithful because I know I can be rescued. And my good name, my reputation is going to bring a good name and reputation in the eyes of the nation to the one I serve. That's our motivation. Do well. Do well. Do you need to withdraw from wickedness and sin? Absolutely. But never forget, it's your job to hide from sin, but it's the Holy One's job to hide you. It's your job to hide from sin, but it's the Holy One's job to hide you. And we'll have more to say about that in the future pretty soon. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.